Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 181st episode of the Nauticast, titled Phantom Pain, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 4, in which Jamie Lannister suffers for his crimes at the hands of the righteous icons of justice known as the Brave Companions. And about damn time, as far as I'm concerned. There's no finer gentlemen in the realm than the Brave Companions. <laughs> That's why they're called that. They couldn't call themselves that if they weren't good guys. That's just the rules. Uh, we named this episode, in a, of course, in part in, in honor of Metal Gear Solid. I thought of you when we decided to name this one Phantom Pain. It works excellently, and I'll probably get a couple more episodes in before I reveal how many words and phrases I'm using in my analysis and recaps that are straight Metal Gear Solid riffs. But right now, they're just Easter eggs for the listeners of Podcasts on Frontier. They haven't quite caught up to Simpsons references, but they're, they're, they're definitely there in the race. So, uh, spoiler warning, as always, we are potentially spoiling you for all published books, all five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. So, spoiler warning for anything and everything. So, no question for this episode. We've kind of run dry on our well of questions, so I want to encourage anyone who's a, a sworn sword or higher-level patron, any of our $10 and above patrons, by all means, send in, our, send in your questions. Any doesn't even have to be a Song of Ice and Fire related, just anything you want to hear me and Manu talk about. Send it on in, either in a message over Patreon, or send it to notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com, or just hit up one of us on Twitter. Force us to answer whatever question comes into your head. We would, we would love to have them, so, so send them on in. Now, at this point, I would be launching into the synopsis, but since Jamie is your favorite character, I thought it would be only suitable to let you uh, roll out the synopsis for this one, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing it. You want to uh, take us away? Yes. I will now be doing the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 4. Woo! His hand burned. Ah, yes. Welcome to the first point of view chapter for Aerys Targaryen, second of his name. <laughs> the chapter opens with him burning Lord Carlton Chalstead. Okay, wait, no, sorry, this is a Jamie Lannister chapter. But then again, what is a Jamie chapter but the memory of the Mad King persevering? Even in describing his pain, Jamie can't escape the flames. The fire's flicking like fingers, fingers he no longer has. Tears and prayers were his only solace now, what little he knew of either. But they only provided comfort until the bloody mummers heard him, at which point his only refuge was to go away inside. His thoughts went to his brother, Tyrion, and all the mocking he'd known in his lifetime. But his brother was not here to comfort him. All he had was Brienne, his saddle partner, lashed together first this way then that. His severed hand hung between them, slapping her chest as he struggled to remain awake. And all the while he was aching, from the ropes, from every step of the horse, from his phantom pain. Pain and humiliation is all he knew on the ride. For the pain, he was given wine to drink. That helped. For the humiliation, he was given horse piss. That didn't. It didn't stop him from drinking it, but when it all came back up, it was left to Brienne to clean the vomit out of his beard, much as it was when he wet and soiled himself. One time he was fool enough to take a sword, hoping, if for nothing else, a chance to die with steel in hand. That was denied him, and anyway, he no longer made for good sport. The fool Shagwell danced around him while Jamie flailed around clumsily. Only when he had stumbled and worn himself out did the goat of cohort threaten to make another stump if he tried that again. 
That night, Jamie thought it might be smart to just fuck off from this mortal coil. Looking up at the stars in the light of the crescent moon, he realized it was a beautiful night. Why not now? Seems as good a night as night to die as any. But Brienne, as is her wont, remained stubborn. Live, she counseled. Live and take revenge and don't be a coward. Me? A coward? Jamie Lannister was a great many things, and a great many awful things. But a coward? Shit. This brought Rorge down on them, but Jamie's mind was elsewhere still. A coward, a craven, a sword hand with nothing else to show for it. Is that the sum total of Jamie Lannister? No. His other half waited for him. His brother, too, who loved him for a lie. And the enemies Jamie meant to repay as well. Rob Stark, Edmure Tully, Vargo fucking Hote, and his brave companions. A Lannister always pays his debts. The days dragged on. More pain, more humiliation, but he ate. And against all hope, he lived. The outlaws bound him to a tree still. It tickled his ego just enough to know they respected his skill that much. And at every turn, Brienne was next to him, keeping him clean, keeping him warm, but keeping her silence. They both knew what was coming soon enough. Urswick let slip that Hall was their destination, and Jamie couldn't stifle his chuckle. It earned him a lash on the face, but that pain paled in comparison to the others. Brienne asked him why he laughed later that night. Hall is where they gave me the white cloak. Once great tourney. He wanted to show us all his big castle and his fine sons. I wanted to show them too. I was only 15, but no one could have beaten me that day. Eris never let me joust. He sent me away. But now I'm coming back. Did I mention Eris lives rent-free in Jamie Lannister's head? <laughs> the next night, they finally came for Brienne. Shagwell, Rorge, and the Dothraki Zolo. Scum even in comparison to the rest of the Bloody Mummers. The three bickered amongst themselves about how to do it, when for some unknown reason, Jamie whispered to the maid of Tarth, Go away inside. Let them have it, but don't be there. Think of Renly. Think of home. But don't get yourself killed. Brienne objected, her stubbornness only outpaced by her bravery. The mummers finally determined in what order to take Brienne, and which parts of her were expendable if she fought back. Jamie had a plan, though. He'll scream. Hell, he'll scream loudly, and the word is sapphires. Rorge gave him a good old kick in the stump for that, and when the pain finally faded, Jamie found himself at the feet of Urswick and Vargo Hote. The goat caught Jamie's hint. If Brienne is despoiled in any way, her ransom value plummets. To that end, Hote posts guards around her going forward to prevent any of the men from raping her. Two nights later, she finally asked Jamie why he did it. Jamie has nothing but pithy remarks and glib comebacks for Brienne, saying an honorable man would have told the truth about why Tarth is ca called the Sapphire Isle. Despite his attitude, Brienne thanks him for the brief deliverance. A Lannister always pays his debts, and that was for the river and the rocks you dropped on Robin Ryger. Finally, the party approaches Harrenhal, and the bloody mummers make a big entrance of their captives. Jamie and Brienne are bound and tied to Vargo's Zorse. Jamie still feels his phantom pain, but now he's fueled by a lust for revenge. He will make it to Harrenhal, he will make it to King's Landing, he is a Lannister, a knight, a Kingsguard, and the bill will come due for all who wronged him. So here we are, back at Harrenhal, still under the banner of Bolton, as we last saw it with Arya. This gives Brienne a bit of hope. They are bannermen to the Starks. 
It gives Jamie dread. It is said they flay their enemies. That's about as much as he knows, though. His brother would know more, and probably Cersei too. Cersei, his mind wandered. I cannot die while she lives. We will die together as we were born together. While we, the reader, last saw Harrenhal in Arya's mind, Jaime has his own set of memories that come flooding back to him. The scorched earth outside of the great castle is where Lord Wentz Turney was held, that fateful event in the year of the fall spring. A latrine now stood where he was made a Kingsguard, piss to symbolize the white cloak he sullied. It had all turned to piss in the end. He wasn't even afforded one night of joy. Brienne continues to take solace in the banners of King Rob flying above the castle, while Jamie is more preoccupied with the heads mounted next to them. Their entrance is quite a to-do, crowds gathering to jeer him, while a freshly murdered puppy becomes Jamie's banner. After more pain and humiliation, Jamie is finally presented to those that hold the castle, starting with a flock of frays. Sir Danwell, Sir Anus, Sir Hostine. Jamie offers them his condolences for Sir Cleos. Brienne, instead, pleads for audience, say, saying she too is sworn to House Stark. Her stubbornness makes her miss Sir Anus shitting on King Rob, but Jamie takes heed of what she missed. The Lords of Frey and the gathered crowd debate what to do with their prisoner. Sell him to Riverrun? To Casterly Rock? How about taking his head in payment for Ned's? Maybe a dance with a bear, all black and brown and covered in hair? Alas, no singing for now, as everyone has to go real quiet so we can hear the words of Roose Bolton. Jamie had last heard of Bolton losing to his father on the Green Fork and teases him to that end. Instead of a repartee, Bolton answers only in silence. His eyes do the talking. Eyes that Jamie mislikes, eyes that remind him of when the wolf judged the lion some 17 years ago. You've lost a hand, Bolton finally says. No, said Jamie, I have it here, hanging round my neck. Unamused, Bolton removes the severed hand and gives it back to the goat. Vargo brays on for a bit, but once he shuts up, Bolton reveals the political reality they are now in. Karstark is dead, Tywin holds the capital, and the king is betrothed to Marjorie Tyrell. Brienne incorrectly corrects Bolton to say Sansa, which allows Bolton to give us his Monday morning sports center recap of the Battle of Blackwater. This pleases Jamie, as does news that his sister and brother both live too, as does his nephew, which Bolton drips out with all the knowing in the world. Brienne and Jamie are unbound. Bruce Bolton offers protection to the former, saying she has no more needs for swords and armor. For the latter, he offers Kyburn to tend to his wounds, and has Steelshanks escort the Kingslayer to the discredited Maester. Kyburn is not optimistic with his prognosis for Jamie. The corruption has spread up the arm, and the safest course is to cut it off entirely. Then you'll die, replies Jamie. I can leave you the upper arm, make the cut at your elbow, but... Take any part of my arm, and you'd best chop off the other one as well, or I'll strangle you with it afterward. Very well. I will cut away the rotten flesh, no more. Try to burn out the corruption with boiling wine in a poultice of nettle, mustard seed, and bread mold. Mayhaps that will suffice. It's on your head. You will want milk of the poppy. No, Jamie retorted. If he goes under, this maester may take his whole ass arm anyway. There will be pain. I'll scream. A great deal of pain. I'll scream very loudly. 
With screams and strong wine, Jamie drowns himself as the not-a-maester gets to work. Jamie drifts out of consciousness, but when he returns, he's glad to find his arm still there, Kyburn patching up his work by folding skin over Jamie's freshly cleaned stump. This isn't Kyburn's first rodeo, experience he credits to his time with Hote and the Bloody Mummers. As Kyburn cleans up his other wounds, Jamie asks for news of the battle, though he likes what he hears, not at all. The green fingers of wildfire unfurl in his imagination, set to the sound of burning and screaming men. I have dreamed this dream before, he mused, but there was no one who he could even share this jape with. Kyburn asked who gave him the wound above his eye. A love tap from his lady protector. Speaking of Brienne, Kyburn best look at her too. I'll grind some herbs you can mix with wine to bring down your fever. Come back on the morrow, and I'll put a leech on your eye to drain the bad blood. A leech. Lovely. Lord Bolton is very fond of leeches. Yes, said Jamie. He would be. And by the grace of the gods, that is your summary for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 4. Damn, you and Jeff really did this every week? (laughs) Anywho, poor Kyburn, what did you think? Well, first of all, all praise to you for doing such a great synopsis. Thank you so much. And yeah, I stepped in to do Kyburn. I I famously only have one voice. It's basically the same voice I use for Jojen and Roos. Thankfully, I only pick creepy characters to do with it. So it's perfectly appropriate. This is one of those chapters where I so clearly remember my first time reading it. Every word digging in deep. Comparing this to the first couple Jamie chapters, it doesn't even feel like the same story. Sure, the violence was creeping in, but the tone of those earlier chapters was mostly funny. Jamie rolling his eyes at everything and everyone, refusing to take any of it seriously because he's Jamie Lannister, protagonist of reality. But that reality was an illusion, which has now been shattered. This chapter is all about the fragments. What I really love about it is how the form matches the content. This is a deliberately messy and shapeless chapter. It's like Jamie himself wrote it. It's a diary entry about lurching around in unbearable pain, surrounded by one fellow prisoner and the worst people on earth. This is how you show rather than tell. This is how you put the audience in the character's head so we're not just reading about his feelings, but almost feeling them ourselves. Jamie is keeping time by pain now. The phantom burning of his hand is constant like a metronome, with days and nights marked by who kicked his stump and when. He, fe- he fades in and out in between, as if in the middle of a dream. That's why Hall tickles him so. In his most ironic, nihilistic dreams, he couldn't imagine being brought to the place where he was made, right off the heels of being unmade. Or was he? When he wonders if all he was is a sword hand, something sparks in him. Well, something sparks thanks to Brienne of Tarth, who has courage enough to call Jamie the craven that he is being. Speaking of cravens, in a way the horror tone here reminds me of Sam's first chapter in this book. A structural breakdown to reflect a personal breakdown. All those those flashbacks that kept intruding on Sam in the present moment. But that was Sam's first POV chapter, period. There was no status quo to compare it to. For Jamie, this is a clear before and after moment. In that way, the best comparison is Theon's first chapter as Reek in A Dance with Dragons. In both cases, Theon and Jaime, you have this character, a grown-ass, high-born, able-bodied man attempting child murder. Theon pulls it off. Good for him, I guess? Jaime only succeeded in crippling Bran. (laughs) Try harder next time, slacker. 
Jamie is basically dissociating in the first parts of this chapter, fading in and out of consciousness, and any train of thought can instantly be snuffed out if he hurts his stump. That sort of disorientation only works after the three previous Jamie chapters, where we get to see what this man thinks like, what he sees from behind his beautiful eyes, and what his desires are, which so far at this point have pretty much just been Cersei. Brienne ends up being a centering point for both Jamie and the audience. She is a constant, someone we can observe in the before and after of Jamie's maiming, the jaming, <laughs> which allows us to immediately process changes happening in Jamie, even if they are less pronounced here than they will be later in Storm of Swords. And one of the the tensions, a kind of a dynamic built into those first few Jamie chapters, is that we're thinking about what we know him for mostly in the story so far, which is throwing Bran from the tower. And at that moment, it was early on in the story, our sympathies were turned against Jamie hard. I mean, that was the first big shock. There's a reason the first Game of Thrones episode ended with that. And that energy is still kind of hanging around. You know what I mean? George hasn't really done anything with it yet because Jamie spent so much time off page in the last book. So we've been ready for some payoff, which means being ready for some payback. But the first time you're reading this, you're probably not imagining what Jamie suffering for his sins would actually look like in practice. And now we see it, and you are not allowed to look away from it. The subtext here is that you, the reader, are the problem. It's your fault. You wanted to see the Kingslayer punished, but you should have been careful what you wished for. Because now that it happened, you're forced to empathize with him thanks to the POV structure. You can only see him from the inside, not the outside. And I think this is George going full Clockwork Orange, specifically the, the movie version, more than the book. If you haven't seen Clockwork Orange, the protagonist, Alex, spends the first act gleefully committing what he calls ultraviolence. But the real object of criticism is us, the audience. The first shot of the movie is Alex staring down the camera, grinning like he can see us watching him. Again and again, he's framed looking right at the camera, stalking towards the camera, always murmuring to us in voiceover like he's sitting next to us and watching with us. When he's about to rape a woman, the camera gives us the POV of the victim's husband, with Alex pushing his that grotesque penis mask right at us, telling us to vidi well, which is to say, watch closely. And that reflective approach to horror pays off in the second act, in which Alex goes to jail to pay for his crimes. And how does the state make him pay? Well, they pump him full of drugs, strap him to a chair, pry his eyes open, and play him an endless looping montage of ultraviolence. The drugs start to turn on him, and he feels sick, no longer able to take sadistic pleasure like he used to. And then, in the background, the doctors play Beethoven. Alex's only humanizing aspect was his love for Ludwig van, as he calls him, and even then it was always tied into the ultraviolence. While listening to Beethoven's symphonies, Alex would imagine himself as a vampire or a centurion whipping Christ. Now it's all taken away, and Alex is unable to even think of committing violence or having sex or listening to Beethoven. Without feeling so sick, he collapses. So he spends the third act of the movie at the mercy of everyone who wants revenge for all the shit he pulled back in the first act. The effect here is to merge the roles of protagonist and audience. Alex is put into our position, a helpless witness to stomach-churning violence. The locus of audience sympathy shifts when it becomes clear that the state is basically just a larger version of Alex, 
There is no justice to be had here, only punishment. And our desire for righteous payback can very easily be twisted around, because there is no vessel worthy of it. It works differently with Jamie because he's a much more depthful character than Alex, who never gets anything like the big bathtub reveal at Hall. Although Alex does end up in a bathtub at one point in Clockgorn, <laughs> he, he does not deliver this, this soul-bearing monologue because there's really nothing in Alex like what's inside Jamie. But the core concept is the same. George is challenging our perspective, giving us the payoff we were waiting for in a way that's sickening to witness instead of satisfying. Now, part of how he pulls that off is by conjuring up far worse people to punish both Theon and Jamie, Like Ramsay and the Bloody Mummers, those are characters who are more like Alex in Clockwork Orange. Most of it, though, is this sensation of being trapped in their heads, having to live with the consequences of the payback. And the point is not so much that it was actually okay for Jamie to throw Bran out a window or okay for Theon to kill those peasant boys. It's more about resensitizing us to violence, not allowing us to stay detached from it just because we think they deserved it. I think it's safe to say that Jamie wouldn't become as introspective as he does if Brienne had just delivered him to King's Landing without incident. This definitely is part of what changes him, or allows a different version of him to come to the surface. But the pain Jamie suffers here is not just collateral damage on the way to a better self. And we feel that because George dwells on it. Can this really be what we wanted? Does this really make anything better? Are we doing anything more here than strapping Jamie to a chair and making him watch? Oh, man. First of all, I just got to say great job with the Clockwork Orange comparison. Thank you, Mitchley. Uh, that was like one of the first movies I saw that really kind of like opened my eyes to more critical cinema analysis Same and here. watching more complex mm -hmm. art. Um, so it's always had a, I don't want to say a soft spot in my heart because it's a really... <laughs> You know, it's a difficult movie a hard to spot watch. In your but, heart. Um, no, I feel the, I it feel is the same way. Something um, that I really much appreciate. So that was great. I can just hear, you know, there was me, that was Alex, and my three droogs, mm -hmm. like Malcolm McDowell, perfectly delivering those lines. Roger Ebert has a famous saying that movies are like a machine that generates empathy, a way for us to understand a little bit more about characters from a different time, race, age, context, etc. This applies to all fictional stories, really, but through Jamie, Dion, and even Sansa, George tests the limits of the audience's empathy. Especially with Theon and Jamie, we are primed to loathe these guys, even at the point where we are put in their heads. I think the parallel to Alex from A, Clo a Clockwork Orange is very apt for Jamie, and Theon too. It's not that these pe evil people are punished, caged, or even killed, it's that they are unmade, the very defining aspects of themselves taken away violently and forced to make do with what's left behind if anything is left behind. It didn't turn out so well for Alex. Jury's still out on where Theon and Jamie land, though there is some hope for a better fate for them. I think that's an excellent point. That's what we're forced to watch happen, is this like slow dissolving of a human being. And it's, it's very hard to make that feel right because of how sickening it is to, to watch and how, how cold and ruthless the people uh, unleashing it really are. We've been saying that kind of the, the crucial element of this chapter is the pain Jamie is experiencing. That's just, that's all over this chapter. There's, there's almost n nothing else going on for Jamie except the sensation of this pain and all the ways he's trying to, to deal with it and live with it and how he thinks about himself now. And specifically, right from the start of the chapter, he's comparing that pain to fire, that his hand burned. 
And I think there's a, a number of things going on there. One, for any, I think, sci-fi and fantasy fan, the idea of his hand burning immediately makes you think of Dune. That scene early on in Dune when, when Paul Atreides, the young protagonist, is tested by the, the leader of the Bene Gesserit. When she asks him to put his hand in the box and then holds the gum jabar needle at his neck, so he has to keep his hand there, even as it it creates uh, through nerve induction this sensation of intense burning, intense pain. And the idea there for her, for the Reverend Mother who is testing him, is she's trying to see if Paul can control himself. She makes this comparison to how an animal in a trap will like gnaw their hand, gnaw their paw off to get out of the trap. But, you know, a human or someone more clever, you would you, you keep it there and you wait for the hunter to come back so you can you can attack them. She she wants to find in her, in her mind, you know, human beings are the more kind of advanced kind of people who can control their pain, control their emotions. Those are the kind of people we're looking for. Those are the kind of people we can make use of. And I think here it works a little differently. There is not that kind of lofty kind of pretentious aspiration going on that's not really a part of this i think the idea here is more that no humans are animals and pain is what makes that clear to us because it just strips away our higher functions i think the fire here is also meant to make us think about hellfire again that this is kind of a ironic version of jamie being punished for his sins he's being sent down to hell to suffer for what he did to to bran and also to uh to ned's men in king's landing I think more than anything, though, when it comes to Jamie and fire, this is supposed to remind us of the Mad King. Those fiery torments that Jamie had to bear witness to that we've already learned a little bit about, but not all of it. Yeah, it all comes back to Eris. He can only describe his pain in terms of fire, burning, and flames flickering up his arm. Fire bookends this chapter, too, as news of Tyrion's wildfire gambit at the Blackwater invokes giant green flames in the Kingslayer's mind. Jamie also thinks back to the deaths of Rickard and Brandon Stark, the former cooked alive in his armor while the latter was strangled trying to save him, and later to Eris sending him away from Harrenhal. This chapter has a steady undercurrent of all the trauma Jamie experienced under the Mad King, and it's just about to bubble up to the surface. And while I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but this is why the bath is especially poignant in his next chapter. Water extinguishes fire. It's where he can be he can briefly snuff out the heiress that is burning rent free in his head. Yeah, that's a great point. There's something so literally elemental about what Jamie's undergoing here. And that it, it comes up even later in the chapter when he hears about the Battle of Blackwater. And yeah, he says, What well, I've dreamed this dream before about the, the green flames overcoming the city. And the irony there is that the wildfire was unleashed by his brother in defense of Jamie's son and the Lannister regime, the side that Jamie is ostensibly on. But it's still a nightmare for him because of the context we're going to learn a lot more about in the next Jamie chapter. But back to the pain. That pain is it's so intense that it just it eats Jamie up from the inside. And it's interesting to, to think about how he tells both Brienne in this chapter and later he, he talks to Tommen about going away inside. That's what you should do when you're confronted with horrible things. You just, you, you imagine yourself somewhere else. But it's not working here. He can't get away from the pain. Now, Jamie has taken wounds before, of course. He's been in battle. He thought he knew what pain was. But the difference is he was always in control. He never knew it could get this bad. And again, it's the, the messy, shapeless structure of the chapter reflects what he feels like inside. He can't even focus or concentrate. The pain breaks down his thought process, and he drifts in and out of consciousness. 
And his mind, he says early on in the chapter, keeps seizing on prayer for relief, which again reminds me of Sam, North of the Wall, when he's just saying, Mother have mercy, Mother have mercy. And he's not even thinking really about the goddess. It's just this line he learned from childhood, and his, his exhausted brain is just seizing on that as something it has left, something it can cling to. And I love how George writes this for Jamie, that the prayers are, quote, unbidden and come bubbling up, George writes, from somewhere inside him. Like the speech he gives to Brienne in his next chapter, where he he doesn't even seem to realize what he's talking about at first, and he's saying, he thinks to himself, I think, why am I telling the story to this absurd, ugly child? I think is how he describes Brienne. Like, he doesn't even realize it's happening. The pain is so bad, it, it cracks open the compartmentalization that has defined Jamie so far. Words are starting to come out without him deciding to say them. Yeah, this made me think of a Thrones invented scene from season three between Thoros, Beric, and Melisandre. When Thoros speaks of the first time Beric was felled, he hunched over his body and just started saying the words of Rolor, not because he believed, but because he felt great pain, and instinctually his mind went to the words he had learned a lifetime ago, words he probably hadn't even used since before his time at Robert's court. Jamie is doing the same here, out of habit long forgotten. My own atheist ass can attest to the times where I've wished or prayed to something to change my fortunes, even though I don't specifically believe in a higher entity. It's just sometimes I'm like, oh God, please deliver me from this Monday morning meeting or whatever it may be. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a, it's a cultural thing and it's something you're used to. We see that with Davos as well, that he has this connection to the faith of the seven, but when pressed on it, he's like, well, it's never, you know. It's that's only because the priests would sometimes give me a coin, give me some food when I was growing up hungry. It's not because I really have a connection to the theology or the eschatology of it all. It's just something I'm familiar with, something you can fall back on. And so everything we're talking about with Jamie here, it's, it's designed to make it hard to hate him. It's not just that he's been taken down a notch. It's that he's so helpless and just debased in the company of monsters. Like when they forced him to drink horse piss, like it really, it does not get much worse than that. And this is, I think, so interesting because it's an exaggeration of the pariah status Jamie has felt before as the Kingslayer. Now, in the past, his sword could always keep it at bay. That's how we thought, thought about it. It doesn't matter if they all hate me because I can fight them. I can defeat them that way. But now we can't even do that. And you have that, that pathetic scene where, where Jamie's dancing around with a sword in his left hand trying to fight Shagwell, who, you know, Shagwell is probably the least intimidating of the bloody mummers, probably the one you'd be least afraid of in a fight. But even against him, Jamie is, is hopeless. And they're all, they're all laughing at him. And it starts to feel like Shagwell is this mirror for Jamie now, that he's, he's become a clown. He's become someone to laugh at rather than hate, but also fear. And after, after Jamie collapses on the ground, unable to take down Shagwell, Fargo just says, that was a beautiful thing, Kingflayer. And he just, he just casually threatens to take a foot away next. Just very, very casually threatens to unleash a whole nother wave of pain. Because that's just nothing to him. He's used to it. And that adds this layer of humiliation to Jamie, as well as the physical suffering. And even, I think, when the, the physical pain starts to fade, that humiliation sticks with him. Yeah, as you say, Jamie may have been a pariah to many, but he was still someone to be feared, someone to take stock of, someone to not underestimate. That's all gone. We meet him as possibly the most beautiful man in the Seven Kingdoms, sometimes adorned in gold, other times white, but always beautiful and beaming. The exact figure of Prince Charming. No, not the Shrek one, Eliana, though I guess that guy too. <laughs> he wears the floppy ears of the traditional fantasy hero. All of this is gone now. 
No one fears him. No one need take stock of him anymore. The worst people, the literal worst people alive, the bloody mummers, are able to toy with him, beat him, ridicule him. George has been beating the night sky and star Im- star imagery in A Storm of Swords so far, very much explicitly with John and Egret giving their differing names for constellations based on their stark and wildling upbringings. We look up at the same stars and see such different things, John thinks, but here in Jamie's chapter, George reverses that gaze. Instead, the stars in all their beauty are looking down on Jamie, this beast of a man, barely a man anymore. Does someone like me really deserve to belong in the presence of such beauty? The pain, the humiliation, these are revealing a much bigger crisis of identity, of purpose. Jamie was always in conflict with his human heart, but his martial skills, his lordly station, and Cersei, mostly Cersei, allowed him to live day to day. All that stripped away, and he's just a pitiable figure, someone best put out of his misery, an issue he very much tries to force when he steals the Dornishman's steel. It's even more of a humiliation. And yeah, then you have that moment with him looking up at the stars, and it's, it's a, I think it's an unexpectedly tender moment your first time through. It's, it's very classical and poetic, the beauty and mystery of nature as a contrast to the mundane brutality of man. Divine beauty, we can see it, but it's just out of our reach. So it's almost like it's, it's taunting us. The stars are just taunting us from up there in the heavens that we can't be beautiful and perfect like them. Jamie has gone from the cool kind of outcast to the, the uncool kind, the abject kind. People snigger at him openly instead of behind his back. It makes me think of Princess Bride when, when Wesley is describing what he's, what he's going to do to the villain. He's going to cut off so many parts of him that when people see him in the street, they're going to shriek, my God, what is that thing? And that's, that's, that's not a kind of hatred Jamie has ever had to deal with, that now he's, he's a broken man. He feels lesser than he used to be. And that's why he compares himself to Tyrion. Now I know how he feels, Jamie thinks. Now, it's debatable how accurate that is. Like, Tyrion was always a dwarf. There was no before and after moment, like Jamie losing his hand. But the point is the empathy Jamie is feeling. It's no longer an abstract question what happens to someone like Tyrion. This is an experience he's going through. It not only makes him look at himself differently, it makes him look at others differently, which includes Brienne as well as Tyrion. Now, speaking of Brienne, remember how right before the Bloody Mummers showed up, Jamie and Brienne were trying to kill each other? Well, now their relationship has been pulled radically out of context, which allows their dynamic to change. They start looking at each other differently, changing thoughts leading to changing behavior, bit by bit. The gap between them seemed unbridgeable earlier in this book. But maybe that was more a product of their social roles and their expectations about each other than who they really were on the inside, with all those things stripped away. George is laying the groundwork for the connection they make at Harrenhal. Jamie telling her the horrible truth he's kept secret all these years, and then returning to very romantically save her from the bear pit. And yeah, this is always filtered through the ironic romanticism that defines their relationship, which Shagwell, very conveniently, spells out for the audience. The lovers, and what a lovely sight they are. T'would be cruel to separate the good knight and his lady. Then he laughed that high shrill laugh of his, and said, Ah, but which one is the knight, and which one is the lady? And Shagwell's little joke there, it has the ring of truth. Brienne and Jamie were fighting back in his previous chapter, but like I said in our episode on Jamie 3, that fight was written like a sex scene. It's honestly difficult to tell who's supposed to be the knight and who's supposed to be the damsel in distress. Like, Brienne is the one who can still fight, and Jamie is the one in need of rescue. 
George loves playing with the concept of the beauty and the beast in the context of A Song of Ice and Fire, and I think Jamie and Brienne is the best of them. All apologies to the Sand Sand folks, which is also a great beauty and the beast pair. I think what makes it work is the fluidity of who is the beauty and who is the beast between Jamie and Brienne. Before the broader events of the War of the Five Kings, it's fair to say most would call Jamie the beauty and Brienne the beast. The ironic epithet of Brienne the beauty is very much, much meant to call her the opposite. Even before his hand was cut off, though, Jamie was already becoming beast-like in nature. His shaggy hair and beard at the start of this book makes him look like a lion, one of the animal touchstones often used in designing the beast in various tellings of Beauty and the Beast. Meanwhile, in Harrenhal, Brienne will be given a laughably goofy gown to wear, making her the belle of the ball of sorts. Unfortunately, her great dance sequence is with an actual beast, a literal bear. Even in-universe, the song The Bear and the Maiden Fair itself is a Beauty and the Beast conception. And again, who is the bear and who the maiden fair between Jamie and Brienne varies moment by moment. I kind of just love tracing the Beauty and the Beast motif through George's works, in no small part because it is my favorite Disney Renaissance movie. But prior to that film, the most prominent adaptation of Beauty and the Beast would be Jean Cocteau's 1946 film. I feel confident in saying that film left a mark on George, seeing as he named his own local theater after Cocteau, as well as writing for the late 1980s adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, starring Ron Perlman and Linda Hamilton, set in modernish day New York. But George, as is his wont, goes deeper than just Brienne or Jamie seeing the real beauty under the outside. Jamie needs to work for it. He's not just good inside all along. Brienne does see something worthwhile under Jamie's facade, but it's up to him to not only rehabilitate himself into a better man, but to provide restitution to those he has wronged. Jury's still out on that, as so far as we go. I think the overall point is, no matter where you think Jamie is going next, the point is that these categories are not ironclad. And for the Bloody Mummers, this is, a, again, a mark of humiliation they're enforcing on Jamie. We have made you weak. We have taken away what makes you who you are. In a way, they've castrated him. Again, the connection to Theon, where the castration is very literal. But the flip side of that is if these categories are fluid and performative, if the self is a shadow on a wall and it's just masks all the way down, then we can be anyone we want. We can liberate ourselves from lies. We don't have to accept the boxes around us, the walls between us. We can be free, inside as well as out. It's not hard to see the implications for gender identity. One and then the other, Septon Barth tells us, changeable as flame. After all, it is only now that Jamie has hit rock bottom that Brienne is able to see him as something more than the Kingslayer, a wicked monster out of children's stories who is functionally not a human being at all. Part of that is just the enforced intimacy between them, tied to the same horse by the mummers, and Brienne has to take care of Jamie. She has to clean up his vomit, clean up his shit, like they're an old married couple. And I think that demystifies Jamie in Brienne's eyes. In the moment, we don't know exactly what she's thinking, but then she becomes a POV in A Feast for Crows and thinks back to this time. And this is what she thinks. Jamie had done many wicked things, but the man could fight. His maiming had been monstrously cruel. It was one thing to slay a lion, another to hack his paw off and leave him broken and bewildered. Brienne is invested in a warrior ethos. She accepts the necessity of killing, but looks on maiming and torture as beyond the pale. 
This is in spite of Jamie being responsible for Bran's own pain and loss and confusion. It's not like Jamie's suffering makes up for Bran's or cancels it out somehow. Bran doesn't even know this is happening. Not only are the Mummers the clear and present danger for Brienne, but Jamie himself is now so helpless and pitiful. It's hard to even imagine him as the same man who tried to kill her. Hating him doesn't feel right. It doesn't necessarily feel wrong either. <laughs> Just irrelevant compared to what's happened to him. Nothing Brienne was ever going to do to Jamie or want done to him compares to this. Now he needs mercy like with Arya and the men at Stony Sept. I love that his hand is literally between them now, as it hangs around his neck, and Jamie like, notices at one point it's kind of like uh, swinging back and forth between her breasts, like it's groping her. This is the hand that made him the man she hated, and now it's harmless. Yeah, and I love the note also about how Brienne is keeping Jamie warm all mm -hmm. through this ride, because the world is just getting colder and colder for Jamie. But going back to Jamie no longer being feared, he now has to be cared for. Holt's line later about Brienne being Jamie's wet nurse gets at this too. He's basically an invalid in the society now, or feels that way at least. Eventually, his class and familial power will help him get back in the game, but that's only after he returns to the seat of power. And I think Brienne's changing perspective is supposed to guide our own. And that changing perspective, of course, is signified by Brienne using his name instead of Kingslayer. And again, that's a parallel to Theon, when Theon catches a glimpse of Bran in the heart tree at Winterfell, and he says, a sword, that's all I ask. Let me die as Theon, not as Reek. That's exactly what's going on with Jaime. Jaime's wondering if he might be better off dead. And I love that he can't help but laugh at the irony that Brienne is now telling him to live Brienne, who hates him and was trying to drown his sorry ass, now, now you're annoying me in the opposite direction. No matter what I do, I just can't make you happy. But her perspective has changed, and so must his. Even more than his hand, I think, what Jamie is dealing with here is that he has lost his luck, the sense that the universe is on his side. The stars no longer speak to him. He can no longer coast. He has to decide, actively, affirmatively decide, who he wants to be what life he wants to live now. Life means confusion, uncertainty. Life means pain. Death is, hopefully, the end of pain. It's so terribly final, as Tyrion said, which can be attractive. But, as Tyrion also said, speaking for the grotesques, life is full of possibilities. Nothing is written. No fate but what you make. Nothing is written is quite literally applicable to Jamie's story because his deeds will be documented in the White Book when all is said and done. When Brienne tells Jamie he needs to live for revenge, whale-sized alarm bells started going off in my head. Are there any famous stories about someone who lost a limb and made it their purpose to exact revenge? Yes, of course I'm referring to Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain, <laughs> which gives this episode its title. No, of course I mean Moby Dick, though I will plug my Metal Gear podcast and say MGSV is very much downstream from Herman Melville's classic, with the playable character going by Ahab, Big Boss is Ishmael, and their support chopper is named the Pequod. But anyway, I was re-watching The Throne Show a while back, and when I got to the scene, I was almost taken aback when Gwen Christie's Brienne said that Jamie must live to take revenge. Surely that wasn't in the book, because I really don't view Jamie Lannister as being on a revenge arc. Sure, he has debts he wants to repay, 
but it's just not quite how I conceive his arc going into Feast Dance. Maybe that's because Walder Frey, Gregor Clegane, and Brienne herself take care of the targets of his revenge. What really moves him is the accusation of Craven. He can live with accusations of being an oathbreaker, kingslayer, man without honor, but a coward? He can't. Isn't that revealing that Jamie could tolerate being thought of as evil, but he can't tolerate being thought of as weak? And I think part of that has to do with gender. The performance of strength is expected of men, especially men in the warrior cast. And back we go to Theon. He thought it was better to be hated than laughed at, thought weak. Not too different from Stannis choosing fear when he can't be loved. Humiliation and vulnerability. These are universal things, but you can't ever admit to them. You have to just pretend to be immune. Jamie deciding to live for revenge is a way of avoiding further vulnerability. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work even in this chapter. No sooner has he decided to stay alive to take down his enemies than he's right back to thinking they took his walls away when they took his sword hand. It was that arm that made him not only a knight, but a man. The taste of revenge isn't satisfying to him in the long run. It's not filling that hole inside, the, the hole of who I am and who I'm trying to be. He's going to have to find another reason to live. Maybe being a true knight after all? And he immediately gets the chance to prove it when some of the bloody mummers show up to assault Brienne. And the specter of rape haunts this chapter from the very beginning. After all, the mummers threatened to rape Brienne during the last Jamie chapter. George distracts us with Jamie's pain, but the threat is always there on the margins. Jamie thinks they will rape her soon enough, and when they show up to do it, George writes that they finally came. This is something that was inevitable, and they've kind of been expecting it. Yeah, this is where the throne show kind of throws me a for a loop because they had uh, depicted the maiming and the threat of rape all into kind of one scene and one episode. But here in this chapter, you can see how George is playing with dread instead. It's there in the back of our minds and the back of Jamie and Brienne's too. The quote-unquote sword of Damocles just waiting to fall on her. And I think the inevitability is part of the horror. It's the banality of evil. This is the status quo. It's not an outlier, it's to be expected, so much so that you have to develop a strategy to deal with it. And for Jamie, the strategy is disassociation. Again, what he calls going away inside. That's how he handled the Mad King's atrocities, filling his head with thoughts of Cersei, replacing violence with sex. When they take your body away from you, all you have left is your mind. So imagine yourself in a story, a happier reality than the hell we live in now. Imagine Renly, the perfect fantasy king. Imagine him as he was, before he was a corpse, growing cold in your arms. Imagine Tarth, the idyllic setting so far from these muddy, bloody woods that never seem to end. We can't change the world. All we can do is dream a better one. And Jamie has good reason to think this way, because the one time he did try to change the world for the better, everyone immediately hated him for it. The problem with this strategy is not only that it leaves the hell world unchanged, it's that it doesn't even work. As Jamie says, they can make you a cripple on the inside, where it doesn't show. He doesn't want that for Brienne, but he can't admit that even to himself. In his thoughts, he calls her a stupid, stubborn bitch, but he also calls her brave. When he tells her to go away inside, George writes that he hears himself saying it. Always a sign that a character is acting on impulse rather than conscious thought. He hears himself like himself as another person who's saying these words. Jamie is disassociating not only from pain, but pleasure. 
his own growing concern for Brienne, a bond he never expected. Even after Jamie saves Brienne from the rape, he refuses to acknowledge why he did it. He calls her wench again, insults her looks, saying, oh, you would have looked even worse without a nose. I just wanted to hear Vargo Hode say Thaphireth. Yeah, it has a certain similarity to I Dreamed of You, where Brienne asks why he saved her from the bear. It does read a bit more romantic in that time, but it is almost a flippant, a flippant response to cover some very real and robust feelings he has for her now. That's a great comparison, because in that moment, Jamie thinks of a bunch more cruel things he could say, <laughs> like, like all those insults he could bring out in this moment kind of are ready to spill out of his mouth, which is what makes it so powerful when he chooses to say something romantic instead. And Jamie's character is defined by these contradictions, hero and villain at the same time the human heart in conflict with itself. We already saw that in his first POV chapter, when his brain told him to hit Brienne in the face with an oar, but something else, maybe his heart, made him reach out to her. So why is he like this? Why hide from himself? Clearly he cares about Brienne enough to suffer even more to try and keep her safe. Why pretend otherwise, especially after it's over? Part of it is that he doesn't want to acknowledge that Brienne might be stronger than him, inside as well as out. Even beyond her, though, Jamie is terrified of emotional intimacy because it requires vulnerability. And he never wants to be vulnerable again. Not after the Mad King. Yeah, that's such a good call. The wounds of Eris are still scabbing over in Jamie's mind and soul, and the last thing he wants to do is reopen anything that will make him hurt like that again. Which is fantastic in the confines of a chapter where he's figuratively drowning in pain. What if he tells Brienne that he cares about her, and she laughs? What if she rejects him? What if she goes back to calling him the Kingslayer? That would hurt more because he opened himself up, like how much it hurts Tyrion when Shay testifies against him. Wear it like armor. Don't let it be used against you. And this is part of why Jaime works so well, specifically as a POV character. From the outside, especially early on, all we could see was the arrogance and the callousness. Now we're beginning to understand that these are defense mechanisms. These are walls Jamie put up to keep the horrors of the world at bay. But in the process, he became more like those horrors. Now he's doing something we never would have expected. Saving Brienne from rape. Allowing himself to suffer in the process when Rorge beats him unconscious. He may say that he owed Brienne for dunking those Tully men in the river, but Brienne is right. He easily could have just sat by and allowed her to be raped. He didn't. It's a glimmer of genuine chivalry, which is only more powerful in such a brutal and cynical context. Rorge, after all, is just pure nightmare fuel. Like, every time he starts talking, just my shoulders go up and I start to flinch. Like, he's threatening to make Brienne eat her own eyes before pulling her teeth out. So he really is the guy Brienne thought Jamie was, throwing the reality of Jamie into sharp relief. And Jamie only saves Brienne by taking advantage of the petty greed driving Vargo Hope. As he says, and this is I think a line with many real-world implications, no one would care if he shouted rape. Only shouting sapphires did the trick, because if Brienne was no longer a maid, Vargo might not get his reward. Which is very canny of Jamie. Elsewhere in this chapter, Jamie bemoans he doesn't know the houses as well as his brother Tyrion, especially regarding the Boltons and the other northern houses. But here we see Jamie knows these types of men, the types who his father would employ and how to get at them. There is a worldly wisdom to Jamie, just not in the same way as his brother. 
Catelyn said that the world is the way it is because of men like Jaime. But here we see a system of incentives that extends well beyond any one individual, even beyond Virgo Hote. As a woman, Brienne's social worth is tied to a perception of chastity and purity. As a noblewoman, that worth can be expressed as material wealth. Rape is a widely accepted part of the status quo. But losing out on payday? Well, that's the real horror as far as Vargo Hode is concerned. And that same cynical touch is at work later, when Jamie saves Brienne from the bear pit. He only pulls that off because of his own value to steal Shanks Walton, who has the bear shot lest he get in trouble for letting Jamie die. It's not like Jamie, you know, touches the bear on the forehead and the bear suddenly becomes gentle. It's, Jamie jumps in because <laughs> he knows that Steel Shanks will intervene and not let Jamie or Brienne get hurt. And I think that's the perfect balance. Like, if the story went in a way where the world really was a good place, if only Jamie could get with the program. I don't think these chapters would have stuck with people like they do. Instead, we see the world as a horror show lying to itself with the stories and the songs. And so the question becomes how you deal with that. How do you do good in a bad world? How can you take advantage of the status quo, make it work at least for you? Of course, there are limitations to that, as we'll see with Jamie in A Feast for Crows. But here, it's tremendously moving that he uses his cynicism to help someone rather than make excuses for hurting them, which is mostly what he's done so far. It's a signpost to the reader that we have to start thinking of Jamie differently. There are depths here that even he is not fully aware of. And I was just looking at this and I was like, I don't even want to think about how hard that must be to write. And all praise to George for building in all these complex layers of reality and projection, authenticity and bullshit, thought and word and action all contradicting each other. You can just never nail Jamie down. And I think that's the point. And then we arrive at Harrenhal. We're back in the grotesque, gothic nightmare of Harrenhal, one of my favorite settings in the world of Ice and Fire. And it worked out so well with the timing that we saw the burning of Harrenhal on House of the Dragon right before recording this episode. Perfect timing. Almost makes you believe in the curse. <laughs> and what I love about Harrenhal is how Georgie uses it as the backdrop for so many different kinds of stories. It's a great setting for political intrigue, as this white elephant castle that dominates the countryside but drags everyone who holds it down. But it's also significant in terms of magic. It was built with weirwoods and scorched by dragon fire. It's like a mystical Chernobyl. Which, to the point of House of the Dragon coinciding well, we're going to find out quite a bit with Alice Rivers and other events occurring during the dance. Absolutely, that mystical element creeps in. And we already saw it with the most recent episode of House of the Dragon, when Laris makes mention of the curse, but only as kind of this, this backdrop for a politically-minded decision that he himself has made. Harrenhal is where these two worlds meet. The Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire. It's where our ambition to be gods runs headlong into mortality. Harrenhal is a golden dream that turns into ashes when you try to put your hands on it. The fiery ladder, as Danny saw in Karth, vanishes as soon as you reach the top. Both the, both the politics and the magic, they tie into personal stories in different ways. Like we first saw Harrenhal in A Clash of Kings through Arya's eyes. And it was part of Arya's kind of brutal coming-of-age story, kind of trying to decide who she's going to be really for the first time as, as, as a kid who is changing all the time and going through various physical and mental and emotional changes, and Harrenhal is the backdrop for that. Jamie is of a different generation, so he relates to Harrenhal differently. He's looking back into the past. Harrenhal was where he got the White Cloak, 
and now he's back, forced to return to memories he has tried to bury. And somehow, Harrenhal has gotten even worse since the last time he saw it. They burned down the Castleton, which is the town outside the walls, and where he knelt to be inducted into the Kingsguard is now a privy trench. That's just the perfect metaphor. Like, the moment that was supposed to change your life for the better is now literally full of shit. As Jamie thinks, sweet turned to sour. It's a fall from grace. And Harrenhal is the perfect backdrop for that feeling because it's a ruined castle. Like Jamie, it also used to be more powerful and impressive than it is now. And now Harrenhal, it, it feels like just kind of a museum of itself. It's a tribute to glories long past. Eris sent him away from that tourney at Harrenhal. That's when the sweet turned to sour because Jamie knew he was a pawn. And same here, he's just used as a spectacle by Vargo Hote to announce how awesome he is as they arrive at the castle. God, I'm really seizing on that, calling it a museum of itself, a tribute to Glory's past. Even honestly, down to the throne show opening credits, and now Harrenhal was the only non-animated location on the map. It is a monument to the past in a way that no other location really is. I seize on Jamie's thoughts about that tourney. I wanted to show them too. I was only 15, but no one could have beat me that day. Eris never let me joust. Jamie's line later about wanting to be Arthur Dane, but becoming the smiling knight along the way, feels like those roads diverged right here at Wentz Tourney. Even his little laugh at Harrenhal makes me think of the smiling knight. I'm not a big what-if or alternate universe guy, but what if Jamie remained and fought in the jousts and melee? Does the Knight of the Laughing Tree story happen the same way? Is Jamie able to defeat any or all of the three knights whose squires tormented the Kranigmen? Do things end up turning out the same? Does he still become the Kingslayer? I'm not sure that any of that's really all that fascinating, but we can see how all these little choices and actions have giant consequences. But I think more meaningfully, Jamie views the tourney as a symbol of his wasted potential, that he never did anything worthwhile, something he reflects upon himself at book's end looking at the white book. Show Tywin says it very succinctly when he's skidding the stag in season one. You're blessed with abilities that few men possess. You are blessed to belong to the most powerful family in the kingdoms. And you are still blessed with youth. And what have you done with these blessings, huh? You've served as a glorified bodyguard for two kings. One a madman, the other a drunk. And speaking of the drunk, this is something Jamie has in common with Robert, that almost like high school athlete sense of, I, I had so much potential and promise, and where, where did it go? What have the years done to me? That's part of what makes Jamie such an interesting contrast with Brienne. It's easy to forget because the show didn't emphasize this, but Brienne is much younger than Jamie. And so she still kind of has all that potential. But it also means she's a little more naive about certain things. Like, as they arrive at Harrenhal, Brienne's like, oh, we'll be fine, because the Boltons work for the Starks. She, she still trusts in the hierarchy of service. And Jamie remembers the Bolton rep of, of flaying their enemies. And yeah, he thinks, as you mentioned earlier, Tyrion would have known more. But what Jamie remembers there is actually more relevant than Brienne's wish that, that the Boltons are going to be their friends. They see that wolf banner fluttering in the breeze, but it has bloody heads on either side of it. And this, of course, is the regime we saw in Arya's last chapter in Harrenhal, being extremely cruel to the small folk who had dared try to survive under the Lannisters. Arya hoped the Northmen would improve things, but if anything, they made Harrenhal worse. Same here with Brienne. Jamie makes fun of the phrase once they get inside, pretending to, to mourn their cousin Cleos, but he's got a deeper purpose here. I think he's trying to divide and conquer his enemies. 
He's reminding the Freys that some of them fought for the Lannisters. And he's letting them know that the bloody members, who are their allies now, left Cleos to rot. Brienne, meanwhile, is trying to appeal to the Freys' better angels, but unfortunately they're the Freys, so they don't have those. And yet you really feel for Brienne, like she's following the rules, right? I saw your banners, you're sworn to House Stark, and so am I, we should be allies. But actually, even within her framework, that doesn't hold up, because Rob is the current head of House Stark, not Catelyn, who Brienne swore to and who sent Brienne out. More to the point, the phrase no longer serve Rob. Jamie and Brienne have quite a lot to catch up on. They don't even know about the Blackwater. And Brienne tries to bluff her way through this, Jamie comparing her to a mule with a bit between its teeth. Even now, Jamie still hides his compliments inside insults. He admires Brienne's stubbornness, but he can't admit it, even to himself. Even she, though, isn't a perfect exemplar of oath-keeping, because no one is. As Vargo says, she was on the verge of killing Jamie when the Mummers found them. Everyone has their own individual wills to follow. And we see that with the Freys being assholes in every direction at once. Anus Frey earns his name when he says he doesn't give a shit about whether the Stark girls live or die. And his relatives either want to ransom Jamie to Riverrun, or Casterly Rock, or maybe just kill him as vengeance for Ned Stark. Which is hilarious because they just pointed out they don't work for the Starks anymore. And that reveals how little interest they have in justice. All they want is an excuse to kill, a narrative they can attach this to. Ah, but then there's Roose Bolton. My beloved Roos the Noose. Most enjoyable of all villains. He doesn't need any complicated backstory or a chip on his shoulder. Roos is just a fucking menace. And George takes such clear pleasure in showing you how Roos barely restrains himself in every scene except one, the Red Wedding. Roos communicates in glances and whispers, always following protocol, everything is in its right place. But that just makes your skin crawl all the more. Like the way he responds to Vargo's plan to send Jamie's hand to Tywin before selling the rest of him to the Karstarks. I love how George writes this. A fine plan, said Roos Bolton, the same way he might say a fine wine to a dinner companion. Like, you know, his heart rate not even changing. And I love that even as Jamie makes fun of Roos for losing at the Green Fork in book one, he still realizes that Roos is way more frightening than any of the Bloody Mummers. Because you can tell that the beast is right there beneath the surface. And what that beast would look like unleashed, well, it would look like Ramsay, of course. That's who Roos would be if he didn't feel the need to keep up appearances. Same deal with Tywin and Tyrion, especially when we, when we see Shay in Tywin's bed near the end of this book. That helps us realize, oh, it's not so much that Tywin doesn't understand Tyrion, it's that he does, and is kind of resenting that he has to hide that part of himself away while Tyrion lives out and proud with it. Yeah, I do have to remember that you do have a Roose Bolton voice, and I have to give you an opportunity to display that next time. I was happy to do Kyber, so. but yeah, well, next next Jamie chapter, at least, Roose, we get a, a full-on uh, display of Roose Bolton's skills, so I will, I will happily bring back the Roose voice for that. Hell yeah, hell yeah. The experience Brienne has here in Harrenhal is worth examining, too. After being captive to the Mummers, the banners of Stark and Bolton give her some hope that she may be given her freedom back, and perhaps be allowed to continue on her task once she pleads her case to Roose Bolton. Roose unbinds her hands and gives his apologies, but then imprisons her in another way, in her gender. Her armor and sword are taken away. She's forced to scrub down and put on an ostentatious pink dress so that she can perform gender the way all the men around want her to, would prefer her to. 
in a way that doesn't make them interrogate gender in the society and how power is built on that patriarchal conception. Which again, think how meaningful it is at the end of this book when Jamie gifts Brienne a sword and a set of armor. Someone who sees Brienne for the person she is, someone who is not trying to box, in, box her into her gender. The chapter ends with Kyburn tending to Jamie's wounds. His arm namely, but also the cut above his eye, a love tap from Brienne. The chapter ends like it started, with Jamie in immense pain. But, Jamie, but the Jamie at the beginning of this chapter was beaten down by pain, defeated by it. It had him weeping and praying. But now, he's defiant in the face of pain, confronting it with only screams, and not with Milk of the Poppy. It's a great way to round out this chapter. The pain doesn't go away, but how Jamie chooses to deal with it has shifted significantly. He's in the driver's seat again. Jamie's choosing to face the pain headlong, rather than lose any other part of himself. Quite literally. He's worried that if he, he uh, accepts the milk of the poppy, if he's put under, that Kyburn might take off his arm anyway, even without his consent. Of course, Jamie passes out anyway. No matter how strong his will, he is up against the limits of what his body can handle. But the effort is still meaningful, as it carries over to later events when his body is in better shape. And yeah, this is the first time we truly meet Kyburn, our not a maester, and George playing the long game in revealing his true villainy and utter depravity. The quiet, kindly manner is disarming. Sorry, Jamie. Plus, he's seen here tending to Jamie's wounds. A principled medic in the service of monsters. Surely it happens in every war. And while Jamie meets Roos briefly beforehand, Kyburn's personality is a nice buildup to Jamie's dinner with Roos in Jamie 5. Both have a quiet air to them, an understatedness that belies the viciousness underneath. And as we just discussed with House of the Dragon, you can see some of the same DNA in Laris Strong as well. A lot of the same quiet, kindly mannerisms, a person much of Westeros would look at and deem not a threat. Yeah, Kyburn is another one of my favorite villains in the story, in large part because he doesn't seem like one at first. He's warm, friendly, soft-spoken with a dry sense of humor. And as Jamie says, he just doesn't look like a monster. One of my favorite Cersei bits is where she describes Kyburn as some little girl's favorite grandfather. Like, even Cersei is fond of Kyburn, and Cersei notoriously hates anyone that she did not personally give birth to. <laughs> With Kyburn, George doesn't give you any easy external shorthand, like Rorge's missing nose or Ramsay's wormy lips. You have to look at Kyburn's actions to see who he really is. And even there, George slow rolls us. All Kyburn says here is that the maesters took away his chain. There could be plenty of reasons for that, many of which would be sympathetic. The only sign of his true nature is that he's hanging around with Vargo Hote. And in this case, even that turns out to be helpful. He knows stumps so well that he handles Jamie's injury better than another maester could have. And Jamie was worried that Kyburn might take his whole arm if he drank milk of the poppy. But even though Jamie passes out, Kyburn doesn't break the faith. Maybe the only time he's observed medical ethics in his whole goddamn life. <laughs> After a whole chapter of raw, unmitigated violence and cruelty, it ends here with a man who keeps it under wraps. Kyburn alludes to Roos and his love of leeches. That's how Roos keeps his own violent delights under control. But he won't forever. The Red Wedding is coming, and Jamie will pick up on that, at least partially, in his next chapter. So moving into our foreshadowing and groundwork portion of this episode, this chapter is literally dense with foreshadowing and groundwork for Jamie's upcoming chapters and for the end of A Storm of Swords. 
Two we can focus on here first. I'll have a golden hand forged and rip out Fargo's throat. Jamie, of course, has a golden hand forged for him in A Feast for Crows, one he dons before he sets out from the capital to set the Riverlands to rights after Tywin's death. Varga Hote does not get his throat ripped out by said golden hand, but his fate at the hands of Gregor Clegane is no less gruesome. And ironically, Jamie he gets his beautiful golden hand, but he can't even drink wine with it. It's kind of more just like this this annoying object he has to negotiate around. It's it's just very cumbersome. It you know, there's that great bit in Feast for Crows when uh, Amy Frey is flirting with Jamie, and she's like rubbing his golden hand, and Jamie thinks, does she think I can feel that? No, for the same reason he can't use it to rip out Varga Hote's throat because it's it's just an ornament. And yeah, as you were saying earlier, I love the irony where not only that other people take care of Jamie's targets of revenge, but those people are often themselves horrible. Gregor Clegane took out Vargo Hote. Hooray, great. Now Gregor's in charge of Heron Hall. If anything, Gregor was worse than Vargo Hote. So there's no there's no catharsis. There's nothing for Jamie to get out of that. The other bit of foreshadowing, blink and you'll miss it. Because when Jamie's mind goes to Tyrion as the brother who loved him for a lie. No further explanation, Jamie just moves on to his next thought. Much like Brienne missing some of the political hints from the phrase this chapter, I didn't really pick up this line the first time either. It of course refers to the truth about Tysha, how she wasn't a sex worker, but truly a crofter's daughter who cared for Tyrion. Jamie adopting his father's lie is going to be a huge wedge between these two siblings. I love coming back to this and seeing that there because there is no explanation offered for this at this point. Like there's not something else we've heard about that would make this make sense. It does stand out, but it only stands out on reread because your first time through this chapter, you're just kind of reeling from how different this is and getting lost in Jamie's thoughts and feelings. And if you notice that sentence at all, it's like, huh, okay, I wonder what that is. Moving on. And then on reread, it just that's just a red flag that Jamie is starting to think about Taisha again. I would bet it's the first time in a while he's really thought about this. I bet he's compartmentalized it away, the same thing he did with the Mad King. It's so great because that ends up being like the end point of Jamie's arc in this book, is confessing that to Tyrion because he doesn't feel like that person anymore. But as he says, Tyrion loved him for that lie and he will hate him for the truth. Yeah, granted we've only had three chapters with Jamie prior to this, but you honestly think even if we had two books plus of Jamie chapters, would we have heard this little line before he lost his hand and when all his like subconscious traumas were starting to bubble up to the surface? So for theory and discussion today, we can discuss the fate of Jamie and his twin sister. I cannot die while Cersei leaves, he told himself. We will die together as we were born together. Cersei repeats this sentiment in A Feast for Crows. We will leave this world together, as we once came into it, and even says something similar to Kevin in his dance epilogue about how Jamie isn't dead yet. We came into this world together, Uncle. He would not go without me. Of course, that's not the whole of it. We have the Valencar prophecy. The Valencar shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you, which many have theorized Jamie to be the Valencar here, even though Cersei believes it to be Tyrion. And then we have the show, which showed Jamie and Cersei dying together in loving embrace below the Red Keep. They even had the fun flourish in the map room in Season 7, where Cersei is standing on the neck and Jamie on the fingers on the map, a tiny Easter egg to the Valencar prophecy. So, I pose to you, do we think they die together? And if so, how? This is something I go back and forth on, because I can, I can see the the kind of poetic beauty of this again like yeah born together die together 
this kind of dysfunctional relationship that drags them both down. I I wonder about the logistics of it, and because there's so many directions Jamie and Cersei could go. And I do wonder if that would forestall Jamie ever going north the way he does in the show. I don't know if there would be time for that. I guess that would require Cersei lasting longer than I think she might in the books relative to the show. But what do you think? Do you think uh, Jamie and Cersei are going to go down together, or do you think he might outlast her? Yeah, I, it's funny because here in the notes, I put definitely die together. But now that I'm just thinking aloud to myself, all the various theories about how, oh, Jamie's going to end as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch or the King's Guard or this, that, and the other. Um, but no, I think if I had to land on one endpoint for him, I would say they do die together. I don't love how the show did it, namely because of how show Euron factored so heavily into their ending. But I do like the idea of Jamie and Cersei being buried under that which they fought so hard for. It could even make sense to do something like this at Casterly Rock. I think too about how Tywin killed the rains in the mines under Castamere, and whether Jamie and Cersei dying in the bowels of Casterly Rock could be a parallel to that. But alighting the whole redemption arc conversation around Jamie, I do wonder what makes sense for Jamie in the endgame. If he kills his sister, is that good or bad for his character? If he's someone who is rejecting violence more and mo- more, though granted not the threat of violence, do I want Jamie going out choking his sister? And unless he's going to Romeo and Juliet himself after, how does he die at the same time? Yeah, all good points. Some people have said it feels kind of like a, a regression for his character, like those changes that he's gone through didn't occur. I think the the one element that I think could make this work really well is if it has something to do with the wildfire, because Cersei developed a very strong interest in wildfire in A Feast for Crows, and if Jaime were to discover that or discover Cersei planning something like what she pulls off in season six of the show, that might bring his arc full circle and that he gets a, uh, another chance to, to stop a, a mad ruler blowing everyone up, but this time it's his sister. This time it's the woman he thought about when Eros was burning people alive. I think that could be very powerful. And I think there could also be an extra level of irony to that if then as a result of the, the second dance of the dragons, Danny versus Young Grift, if that wildfire gets blown up anyway, <laughs> despite Jamie stopping Cersei. But I also agree with you, like even in that scenario, so what, Jamie just falls on his sword or is also there and gets blown up or what happens? And so part of me thinks maybe... Maybe the whole we were born together, we die together thing is just an expression of narcissism that isn't going to necessarily come true. And maybe something else will happen with Jamie. So that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 4. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we would really appreciate it. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where our patrons get exclusive episodes, early access, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can follow me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find my coverage of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. And I recently put out my first episode on Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, for all our $5 and above patrons. Going to be doing monthly episodes on Star Wars going forward. I'm also doing monthly episodes on Lord of the Rings for patrons. Uh, My next one is going to be coming out next week on Book 5, Chapter 8, Houses of the Healing. And next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, Tyrion adjusts to the new status quo. 
a wife who fears him, a city that hates him, and a father who gives him the shit work while forging swords for the other men in the family. <laughs> if nothing else, though, coming off this chapter, we can say at least Tyrion is better off than Big Bro right now. Yeah, it's a low bar, but at least he's clearing that. <laughs> Good for him. Good for Tyrion. And, of course, our House of the Dragon coverage will continue every week until season one is up. So uh, thank you again for listening, and we will uh, see you next time for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 4.